for five weeks, we will unlock some untold stories of famous biblical characters and situations to find the compassionate heart of God that extends both grace and mercy to the broken individuals that he chooses to use. Now, I think we as humans, for some reason, have an unhealthy um, uh, kind of uh, attraction to romanticizing uh, tragic tales. Now, in 1912, the Titanic, an 882-foot-long cruise liner that was said to be unsinkable, collided with an iceberg on its maiden voyage, and out of 2,224 passengers, over 1,500 of them died. To me, that is a deeply tragic tale. And as we know, there were poor people that were locked below the decks. In addition to that, there were not enough lifeboats uh, uh, for everyone because they were worried that the lifeboats would would block the view of some of the richer class. They they removed some of the lifeboats. They justified it by saying the boat is unsinkable. Uh, Let's not take up the deck space. And as we also know that even when they began to lower the lifeboats into the water, they didn't fill the boats up at first to their fullest. They could hold almost 60-some people. Some of them only had 20 people in them. And for some reason, this story, this tragic story of over 1,500 people dying, has become this romantic tale. It has been the background to many romantic books and even in a best-selling movie in 1997. Now, my wife is going to kill me for this, but I caught Katie watching this film on TV this week, the movie Titanic. Has anyone seen it? Come on. Be, be honest. <laughs> I don't know why, but this movie really bothers me. It really irks me. And I'm not sure why it bothers me. I'm not sure if it's because of how unrealistic it is at times, or if because somehow it's taken this traumatic, uh, tragic experience and turned it into uh, these Hollywood romantic scenes that uh, have uh, kind of made young girls' uh, hearts. I'm not sure which part of it bothers me the most, but unfortunately, uh, this movie just really bothers me. And, and I realize for some reason we have an unhealthy attraction to romanticizing this tragic tale, and I think it's because we are afraid of the reality, the uncomfortableness that's around it. But the Titanic is not the only boat story that we have an unhealthy attraction to romanticizing. We also do it with Noah's Ark. Somehow this deeply tragic tale that literally includes the death of all mankind and a complete wipeout of creation has become romantic to us and, the, and, and we can see that through the way that we tell it. We make it safe. We make it tame. We make it comfortable. We make it friendly to kids. For some reason, I too can be guilty of this. But folks, there's so much to the story of Noah that is far from tame or comfortable. There's so much that we have to leave untold for it to be safe, tame, and kid-friendly. Somehow it's become this story, as long as you live right and you live perfectly and blamelessly, then God will protect you and don't worry about all those evildoers because he will kill them off and everything will be okay. This is the story that we have told with Noah. You see, the story of Noah and his ark is much more than hippie colony of man and animal surviving on a boat, surviving evil, and then dancing under the rainbow promises of God. 
To be transparent, I'm not even sure why I'm starting our new series, Untold with Noah, because there are so many crazy, sketchy, and messy parts to it that we leave untold that it probably was not a smart place to start. It has some really messy theological as well as uh, practical uh, things to it. And if we were honest with ourselves, I think all of us would admit the story of Noah is very uncomfortable and it's very messy. It's full of things that we don't like to tell about. If that wasn't true, then we would tell our kids all of the parts of Noah. Briefly, let's just look at some of those untold sides of Noah that make us uncomfortable. For many, the story of Noah has actually become an allegory. It is just this, this kind of mindset that it was a parable or a story or an allegory, and it's not a factual event. For others, it is a completely factual event that they believe there was a, a earth, uh, a flood that covered the whole earth, or at least most of the earth. And as a result, regardless where you fall on that scale... I think there are some uncomfortable parts to it. And for me, I believe the story of Noah is a very factual event. I think it literally happened. And I think that because as you study uh, all of the cultures throughout the early creation of uh, the, the whole western, eastern area, eastern area, sorry, uh, there are stories of a, wild, a worldwide flood in each of those cultures. In fact, the Babylonian tale of Gilgamesh almost mirrors Noah exclusively. And it is found in just about every early culture of mankind. It doesn't really matter if you find it's allegory or factual. There are some still weird parts to this story that we have to face. First, the story of Noah is about a guy who doesn't become a dad until he's 500 years old. I mean, most of us that have daughters have told our daughters they can't date or get married to their in their 30s. But Noah wasn't even settling down until he was 500 years old. We see that in Genesis 5.32. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In the best of health and with all of science and with the best of luck, we might make our 90s. However, we aren't able to comprehend what it means to live to 500. So we develop pseudoscience to explain the mystery that makes this part of our faith uncomfortable. There's been the idea of canopy theory that has been perpetrated by many young earth creationists to explain longevity. Others have talked about the effects of sin on the human structure and how it has now caused decline in ways that it didn't back then. Others have used a theological leaning and said that it's obvious that God grew tired of man's sin in the Noah story and limited his days to 120. Well, we're not even reaching 120 right now. Another has suggested that maybe the earth moved at a different speed and time was measured differently. We have to face the fact that this untold story, this part that Noah gets to live to 500 years, is really uncomfortable to us. And we have no really good answers to explain it. It's part of the mystery. It's something that we have to face. Secondly, the story of Noah brings up this whole idea of Nephilim. Now, I have never heard a sermon on Nephilim. Have you? The mystery of this kind of thing that makes uh, for good movies, right? Noah, like 
the Titanic was a best-selling movie. It has uh, been full of great stories. It, it has uh, kind of this creative imagery around it. And this mystery, this, these giants, are kind of the thing that makes for good movies in Hollywood, but they don't make for good sermons. This is really a lot of, there's a lot of extra biblical uh, kind of references and Jewish history around who the Nephilim were. Uh, and briefly, I'm just going to refer to Genesis 6-4 to talk about this. The Nephilim were on the earth in these days and also afterwards. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. Right? This is not what we're teaching our kids. We're not talking about how this happened. The Hebrew for Nephilim uh, the word in there is used to describe giants. The weirdest part that we overlook a lot of times, the part that we leave untold, is that the account of these giants is that they were on the earth before and afterward. Do you notice that? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. They were mentioned in this text like it was just a normal part of life. Oh yeah, the giants were still on the earth in those days. Afterwards, as you know, these giants were created when the sons of God had children with earthly women. That's some science fiction stuff. You know, we, we like to talk about the Bible verse of being on equally yoked. I think this is a prime example of being on equally yoked, right? We have to back up to Genesis uh, 6-1 to kind of get an understanding of who these sons of God were and why the children they were having were giants. Genesis 6-1 says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, and their days will be 120 years. Both the word there for son and the Jewish tradition around it allude that these sons of God were actually angels or angelic beings. Now, as I said, there's a whole bunch of Jewish tradition around this that we won't have time to get in. But overall, most people think they were either fallen angels or angels that were given a charge to watch over mankind. And it's where the movie, if you've seen the, the Russell Crowe Noah movie, got the idea of the watchers. What we do know is that the, off, the offspring of uh, the, the, uh, these angelic people Marian earthly women were giants. And whatever the case, that behavior specifically is what upsets God. It's what specifically says, I'm not going to allow man to live to 500 years anymore. There's not going to be any more 500-year-old dads walking around because of what those people are doing. Now, F.F. Bruce, a commentary, uh, a theologian, explains this in his commentary. Nephilim, they were the offsprings of the unions just mentioned, and the setting suggests that they were ringleaders in the evil that was described. It is also suggested that there was a reality behind the old mythological stories of immoral men of great strength. Now, part of Noah's story that we leave untold is that apparently there was some demigods that actually existed. These were men who were half God or half supernatural and half human. They were of great strength and size, and they were part of the problem. So let's think about our Hollywood stories today. We have Superman, who uh, is considered to be half human, half God. We have Wonder Woman, who is supposed to be half God, half Amazon woman. We have Thor, who is the son of a God. We have Hercules, who is the son of God, and so on. 
this culture in the same way had their exact same heroes. But according to this passage, there's actually something to it. There's actually a reality around them. There was some super strength humans that formed out of these relationships. Science fiction, but a part of Noah's story that we leave untold. However, the untold stories of Noah aren't just about his age and Nephilim. We too easily skip the part where God actually regrets making his creation. So he drowns the whole world. That's heavy stuff. You know, this morning we sang, good, good father. And as we were singing it, part of me was going, can I rationalize that? And I believe that to be true. Can I rationalize that with a God who is willing to drown his creation? Right? When we face the untold sides of these stories, there's some messy parts to it. And then coming out of the ark, God says he makes a covenant with Noah and every living thing on board. God makes a covenant about giving an account for life both with Noah and the animals. He says, I will require an account of the lifeblood of every living, breathing thing that is on the ark with you. We don't talk about the covenant God made with the animals, do we? That messes with our theology. I always joked about this passage. Does that mean God wakes up the dog at the end of time and says, why did you bite the postman? (laughs) By the way, now you get to cease to exist now that you've given an account of your lifeblood. Or does the dog get to live? These are messy parts of the story that we don't like to face. I believe that we have changed this story. Uh, You know, on top of that, Noah comes out of the ark. So the flood's over, right? On top of that, this great covenant happens. And what's the first thing that Noah does? He gets drunk. And he doesn't just get drunk. He gets passed out drunk naked, right? This is not the great man of God that we tend to think of and what we convey to our children. I believe we have changed the story to make Noah the story of a great man of God that earns God's favor by living blamelessly. And subsequently, when we do that, we do our best to paint our facades in life, modify our behavior, and serve God in a way that we think we too are righteousness, righteous enough to earn God's favor. And then happy with ourselves, we kind of stick our noses in the air, and we look at those around us, and we think, They're just not quite as righteous as we are. The story is actually about a very broken man that simply found grace because he lived by faith. Now, I don't know who author Paul David Washer is, but I love this quote I came across this week from him. And he says, There's no such thing as a great man of God, only weak, pitiful, faithless men of a great and merciful God. I actually think this is what defines Noah. It is a posture of heart that I want to reflect on this morning as we push out the story of Noah. As 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 you can tell, this morning we're going to be starting our series Untold, these untold stories and characters of the Bible, by beginning with an honest look at Noah. And I think we can all agree that Noah is probably one of the most famous biblical characters. His story is one that's been depicted on Christian bookstore walls, made into cute Sunday school lessons, It's used as a theme for preschool play areas, and like the Titanic, has become a best-selling movie. 
We depict Noah as this great man of God rather than a man that was used by God in great ways. Sometimes we do the same thing with ourselves. We can be uh, kind of guilty of viewing ourselves as being used by God because we are great, and as a result, we ignore our own stuff and our own brokenness, and in doing that, we undermine the role of grace and mercy and what it means to actually be an heir of righteousness. And so this morning, we're going to glance at a reference to Noah, first in the New Testament, in which the author of Hebrews uses Noah as an example and a benchmark of what it means for us as followers of Jesus to live completely by faith. You can turn with me to Hebrews 11, 1 through 12, 1 through 2, and we're going to read 7 and 13. you also find it on the screen in front of you. Now, it's important to know that Hebrews, as a book, is mostly being written to what audience? Is that a Gentile audience or a Jewish audience? Jewish audience. So, When this story is being told to the Jewish reader, they are well aware of Noah and his messiness. They don't confuse him for a great man of God. They know him to be a forerunner of them. They know his story to be an example to them, but they have not confused with the reality of his story. So the writer of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 11, 1 through 2. Now, faith and confidence is what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for, for keeping with faith. Then he goes on in verse 7 to talk about Noah. He says, By faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his time, by his faith, he condemned the world. And became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with his faith. And then he talks about some other leaders. And he says, they were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Admitting they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. Now, Hebrews gives us Noah as an example of faith. And what defined his faith is actually much simpler than what we often realize or want to make it. Put quite simply, what makes him exemplified in this chapter of Hebrews is simply Noah had faith. Noah by faith. The only thing that we see in this isn't any great ark that he built. It is just that he had faith. He lived in holy fear. We would do good for our praxis and our theology to match many theologians by no longer referring to Hebrews 11 as the heroes of the faith, but rather by the by faith chapter. This chapter is full of people that were living by faith. Nothing they did was great on their own. They did great things because they had God's favor, but not again because of something they did. But because they had faith, God graciously pours out his favor on them. Hebrews tells us that Noah did not know everything or have everything figured out. However, he became the heir of righteousness by having faith in the midst of what was on scene. And that is where I want to spend our time today, looking at what it means to be an heir of righteousness. F.F. Bruce explains it like this. It was by faith that the ancients, which of Noah is mentioned here, received divine approval. Not by what they did, by faith. 
For they, as the author, is about to demonstrate massively, were enabled to hold fast to the unseen in spite of the illusions and the temptations of this passing world. I think another reason we have really over-romanticized the story of Noah is not only because of its uncomfortableness, but because of our inability to understand this idea of righteousness. Likewise, we subsequently also then understand grace and the Lord's favor. And I personally think because of this, we have so, is why we have such little grace and honor for each other and at times even for ourselves. To understand what it means to be an heir of righteousness for Noah, I want us to briefly look at the Old Testament account of Noah. Genesis 6, 6 says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Then he says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account to the story goes on of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people at his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then from there we go into the story of the ark. In the first few verses we see that God regrets making mankind. He says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. You know, in the 60s and 70s, surfers used to say, he was a righteous dude, right? You guys know that? So that's how this text describes Noah. He was a righteous dude. The NIV says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people in his time. And so automatically, we begin to give him this great man of God syndrome that we define him by. And some versions, like the King James Version, actually says he was perfect in his generations. Now, we skip the context of that. He was perfect in his generations. He was blameless among the people in his time. We have to read things in context. Noah wasn't perfect. Noah wasn't blameless. It's a comparison game. That makes him a pretty big hero of the faith, right? It makes this story pretty lofty. Favored, perfect, blameless, righteous. But how do we wrestle with these ideas of what it means to be favored, to be perfect, to be blameless and righteous with verses like Ecclesiastes 7.20? Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. And Paul pushes that out in Romans. He says, at its written, there is no one that is righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how was Noah righteous? How was he perfect when no one can be righteous or perfect? Well, I think we have to understand the concepts in this story. The concepts of favor and righteousness. The dictionary defines righteousness through the lens of behavior that is morally or justifiably right. If we accept this definition, the one, the other scriptures we read do not apply to Noah— or Noah was really good at behavior modification in a way that earned God's blessing. Or three, this isn't what righteousness is in a biblical sense. The scriptures tell us that no one can be righteous. Not one. So why does Genesis say that Noah was righteous? And why does the author Paul say that he, I mean, the, the author of Hebrews say that he was the heir of righteousness? 
For in the same passage that we see the Lord disappointed with his creation, we see Noah has gained favor with the Lord. It might be better if we didn't use the word favor and we looked at the original word. You can see it written in Hebrew there. I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce it. And the word literally means he found grace. And the word found is interesting too. It can also be used in the, uh, as the word hit. So if you would hit somebody, it's the same word as what is used here for no found. In other words, at this point, we don't see a claim that Noah was blameless, just that he was gracefully hit with the grace of, of the Lord. He was, he was gracefully hit. He was poured out the Lord's favor and grace on him. Not for any reason other than, why? Because he had faith. The word for blameless or righteousness is tamin. It appears 91 times in the Old Testament. Almost always in a method of someone being made right. Not that they have been made right, but they are being made right or they are moving towards righteousness. Here's one example of that. Genesis 17.1. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk with me and be blameless. Walk with me and be blameless. The same word uh, for blameless there is the same one which Noah is called uh, righteous or perfected, right? When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord invited him to walk with him and to discover what it means to walk with him, to walk into this hair of righteousness. The idea of righteousness not being perfection or achievement, but being part of a journey with God is exactly what is echoed in Hebrews 11. Noah was the heir of righteousness because simply he had faith. In Genesis, Noah had the favor in God and was considered righteous because he walked with God when no one else was. He was the one who was righteous in his generation or in his time or among his people. He had God's favor only because he was trying. He had faith. He believed in God when nobody else was. When we live by faith, we are the heirs to righteousness. And when we say that, God is at the center, right? When we live by faith, we are the heirs to righteousness. God is at the center. But when we live for righteousness, which we do way too often in the church, is we become self-righteous and place ourselves at the center. The minute we strive for righteousness, oh, we've got to be blameless, we've got to be perfect like Noah, we begin to modify our behavior to achieve something of our own doing. But what we see here is that Noah is hit with the Lord's favor and nothing he's doing. Now, Noah wasn't perfect. Noah just lived by faith. And God graciously poured out his favor on Noah as a result. And this is what made him an heir to righteousness. Noah didn't make himself righteous. Building an ark didn't make him righteous. Nothing he, it, it's not saying that Noah never did wrong. It's saying that he was trying through faith to be God's. In fact, just a few chapters later, after the flood, we see how imperfect Noah really is. This is just one of those untold parts of the story that we don't like to tell. Genesis 9, 20 through 24. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. One day he drank some wine he had made, and he became drunk, and he lay naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers, 
He didn't just tell him. The word there implies uh, he's making fun of his father. <laughs> Dad can't hold his liquor. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders, and backed into the tent to cover their father. They showed him honor. As they did this, they looked the other way so that they would not see him naked. When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. And then he cursed Canaan. The son of Ham, may Canaan be cursed. (coughs) May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. Now Noah, the guy who was an heir of righteousness, he wasn't perfect. Because in his passage we see that he got drunk. And he didn't get drunk, he got black out naked drunk. And if we approach Noah's righteousness as perfection or something he earned, then it creates a dilemma of how we view and talk about Noah. We end up with a Noah that was perfect before the flood, but drunk after the flood. A Noah that did nothing bad before the flood, but after the flood did everything bad. Now that doesn't make up. Why did God destroy the earth? He destroyed the earth because man had grown sinful. Man had grown evil. One of the first things that we see Noah do afterwards is not a thing of perfection, right? Our theology often acts like we believe Noah was perfect before the flood. And because of this, we have no way to make excuses about why Noah got drunk after the flood. So this week, I explored commentaries and listened to theologians try to explain how Noah got drunk. This week, I found some say that he forgot to take his age into the account after the flood, and he didn't know his new limits. I think at 500 years old, he probably had a higher tolerance than he that God gives him credit for. Some say maybe Noah had never grown wine before and he misread the ingredients. Another said wine changed its alcoholic properties after the flood. Yet another said Noah probably had never made wine like this before and he didn't have a way to water it down. Can we just say there was probably plenty of ways of watering it down? The earth was just flooded. Others say maybe he couldn't face reality. When he got off the ark, he saw the death and destruction. He realized everything he's been through. He's been cooped up with his wife and his kids and their wives in a boat for 40 days. Right? So maybe he needed an escape. When we view Noah as perfect before the flood, we have to make some pretty bad excuses of why the first thing we see Noah do afterwards is not so perfect. Excuses like that perpetrate a bad understanding of what righteousness is. Excuses like that say that we earn our salvation, we earn our grace, we earn our favor. Noah's favor came graciously from God, despite his brokenness, because he tried to walk with God, because he tried to live by faith. Now, I know there was not a perfect Noah before the flood and a drunk Noah after the flood. Instead, the story teaches us that God graciously is willing to pour out his favor on those who try to live by faith. Regardless of their brokenness, they become what Hebrew says is the heirs of righteousness. There is no such thing as a great man of God, only weak, pitiful, faithless men of a great and merciful God. And when we live by faith, we are heirs of that righteousness as well. And God is at the center. When we live for righteousness, we become self-righteous. We put ourselves and our perfected sense of ourselves at the center. Righteousness is something we inherit when we are committed to walking with God and living by faith. 
when we misunderstand righteousness, we mistake it for behavior modification. When we misunderstand righteousness, we think we are at the center of it, and it's something we earn. And when we misunderstand righteousness, we look down on those around us and don't see them as good as us. Noah was the heir of righteousness. And if you inherit something, it is simply because you have done so by being born into a family and not upsetting the family enough to get disowned. Noah was the heir of righteousness because he had faith in God. And as a result of that, he was born into a family through faith, and he never disowned it. It doesn't mean he was perfect. We can face that Noah was the heir of righteousness because he lived by faith. Then lastly, we can understand this last aspect of righteousness. It is also, in Jewish culture, understood that righteousness is expressed in the way that you relate to those around you and the way you respond to them. We as Christians are so quick to judge. But here it is, a hero of our faith that we lavishly teach our children about as a benchmark that got passed out drunk and naked. And then we see that Noah's two oldest sons were righteous because even in that place where Noah is doing something stupid, they honor him. His youngest son looks at him, makes fun of dad, goes and tells his brothers, spreads the gossip. Not honoring. Not righteousness. But Noah's oldest sons are credited in some translations as also reaching righteousness because what did they do? They honored their dad. In his brokenness, they were aware that righteousness is something you receive from God, not something you do, and it's something you extend to others. So they backed into the tent. They covered up dad, and they walked out. In Reckless Mercy, Carol Wimber writes, I realized that I had believed that the Christian walk was primarily concerned with our gradual transformation to his image. And therefore, I viewed the weaknesses and sins of others as being the most serious of events. This morning, as Matt comes to end our time together, and you'll be dismissed after that, let the Lord pour out favor on you this morning because of your faith, not because of who you are or what you do, but merely because you are pushing into him through faith, not because what you do is right. I encourage you to also, as we sing this song, to let the Lord soften your heart to respond better to those around you. Learn how to extend righteousness, not look down your nose at him. In this story, it's a drunk. We are to respond with grace, like the Lord does to us, not judgment. Your righteousness is shown in this understanding by how you extend it to others. And that is what separated Noah from himself, from the rest of his generation and what separated his sons from each other.